Good afternoon and welcome to the FINOS podcast where I'm joined by Denise Keeper, VP of Special in- Initiatives at Nearform. Hi, Denise. How are you this afternoon? I'm good. How are you, James? I'm extremely well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I love talking to you. So, Denise, can we begin with you telling us a bit about yourself and your role in the Nearform team? Sure. Um, I started out in tech in the early 90s, and I had some proprietary jobs, some of the most proprietary companies like Apple. And I found it really inefficient as as a way to um, create good software. So as soon as the open source movement happened, I, I wanted to work there. And I was fortunate enough to get tapped on the shoulder in a sushi bar in Cupertino and asked if I wanted to open source Java by a recruiter. And I went outside and called my husband and said, do I want to open source Java? And he said, yes, you want to do that. <laughs> and so I took that job. And I spent six years open sourcing Java and another four years at Intel. And really, those two jobs together were 10 years of evangelism for open source because it was the very beginning of the movement. And I basically traveled three weeks out of every month somewhere in the world to talk about open source to universities and governments and companies and individuals, just anybody that would listen to us in those days. And um, there were about half a dozen of us that, that did this. And so we were sort of a merry band from different companies, but all united on this idea. So then I, because I was so aligned with open source and so well known as a person that you know believed in it, ever since then, that's been my career. Um, I have had a consultancy for a number of years. Starting when I was at Sun, um, Scott McNeely used to lend me out to his cronies at other companies to help them understand open source. I spent days and days in different CEOs' offices, you know, writing on the whiteboards, right? And then, um, you know, I was the CTO of Wikipedia, which is kind of the quintessential open source job, right? Um, And then I took a job working for PayPal. They had been a client of mine, but they wanted me to become an employee. And it had been a while since I worked near um, FinTech. They wanted me to help them get more open source out the door. And when I got in there, I realized that most of what they were proposing was not going to be very successful, which is why I wrote the four questions to help my colleagues sort through the the proposals um, with some kind of eye to gaining success at the endpoint. And after five years of that, um, well, I should say we decided that they needed to learn how to collaborate as a precursor to deciding which open source projects to do because they couldn't come up with any compelling ones. Um, and I thought it was because they didn't understand the methodology very well. So we we revitalized InnerSource, which is something that was invented back at the beginning of open source, but had kind of fallen out of the conversation as open source grew. But now that open source was winning, you know, everybody wanted to be a part of it. We could revisit inner source and get everybody learning how to do the open source method inside the firewall, which fixes their engineering problems inside the company, but also inoculates all the employees as reasonable collaborators in a real open source project. So there's less risk that they're going to get the branding, um, you know, hit when they get it wrong. You don't want that that. Uh, 
that news story that talks about how you didn't get it right, right? So, so because open source is still mostly enforced by public public outcry, you know, it's one of the things that people worry about is getting it wrong. And, and so doing intersource teaches them. I wrote a book with, uh, with a guy at the University of Limerick uh, here in Ireland who was researching these methods even before he, I started talking about it again. And um, along the way, I spent a lot of time in Ireland and I decided that I would like to spend more time here. So I made a decision that when I was leaving PayPal, I would come and work in Ireland. Um, I did a lot of work with Nearform because they are the largest co single contributor to the Node core engine. They're sort of originally formed around Node. And uh, I was the first chairwoman, chairperson of the Node Foundation. Um, we, one of the things I did for PayPal was help save the Node brand and the Node project from itself because it was uh, imploding due to hostile forks. So we we sort of put it all back together and got it on the right track again. So that's how I met Nearform. And then when I got there, Nearform is very much an open source first company. They use a lot of open source. They contribute to a lot of open source and they occasionally open source their own work as well. And um, they wanted better outcomes. People didn't know about them. They were almost a secret company and let, except in the node community, right? And, um, you know, a lot of people know me, so it was easy for me to introduce the world to Nearform. And it was easy for Nearform to let me do more intersource work because they already had customers that were asking for it. They'd already had engagements. They didn't have a, a name for it, but they were being asked to teach the capability of doing open source style development, which is what intersource really is. So it was a nice little marriage. It's been it's been really good and you know made it easy for me to move here to Ireland and get a work permit and move along. So that's great. And knowing that Nearform also um works within the financial services um industry, can you describe where financial services sit in the open source maturity curve and the fears that um should be removed to accelerate digital transformation in banking? Well, yeah. So the fintech uh, industry is was both early and now late to open source. They were early users, and in fact, I had my first conversation about um, dumping Sun hardware in favor of Linux at Morgan Stanley in like 2000 or 2001. They were very early to that game, and you know, IBM helped them find that. That's part of what the investment in Linux was about. Um, so at the same time, they were consumers, but not contributors. There were very few fintech companies actually contributing to open source. And of course that creates an imbalance when you get, when you derive that much value from something, but you don't give back, you're creating a liability for yourself that you don't even realize you're doing. You think you're being clever because you're spending less money, but in fact, you're just making a deeper and deeper hole. Right. And so I think that the fintech community is starting to come to open source through the auspices of places like Finos, but it's still early, early days. And it was only two years ago that I gave my first talk for a Finos event and um, in London. And I was talking about Intersource, you know, because most fintech companies need to learn that collaborative gene is missing in their DNA and they need to learn it. Right. 
And that's a that's a risk-free way to learn it. But um, in the middle of that conversation, we, you know, we had there was a little skirmish <laughs> because I said something about um, Goldman Sachs had just revealed its process for contributing. And my take on that process was that I saw a lot of very similar checks and double checks and triple checks kinds of, of process at the very beginning of open source. Every company had one of those. I had one at Sun. And I know from experience that engineers will not do that. It doesn't matter how deeply, carefully indoctrinated they are in the you know, need of your company to be secure. That's not how it happens. So um, my advice to them was that they simplify and, and work harder on focusing on making sure that the contributions were ones that people need and that they stick and that they redound to the greater glory of, of uh, Goldman Sachs. But don't worry so much about IP making it out the door because that's not actually the issue. And um, I've not followed, so I don't know if they if they did as I suggested, but they're a smart company. They probably are going to get closer than uh, and maybe faster than we did. It took us a long time because we were so afraid. In those days, no, nothing was sassified. And we were so afraid that distribution was going to cause us to have to open source our own stuff because of proximity to the viral licenses. But, um, you know, that's less of a fear now. So. So, Denise, where do you think these fears come from? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that at the dawn of open source, there were a few companies who were clearly in the crosshairs. We thought of them as the enemy because they were doing the exact opposite of what we wanted to have happen. Um, Microsoft was our poster child, but they weren't the only one. There were several. And those companies fought back as best they could. One of the ways they fought back was to cede a fair amount of fear, uncertainty, and doubt into the customer base. So you'll remember that fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD for short, was invented or acronymed by IBM a long time ago. And it was one of their tactics uh, at one point in their long history. That's a very old company. So, you know, 100 years of tactics and FUD was one of them. But um, they picked it up with a vengeance against open source and they did a lot of heavy pushing of fear messages to try to get their customers to be wary of getting involved with open source. And um, so when people are afraid of using open source, a lot of times they're carrying really old ideas around. A lot of this stuff has been clearly dispelled just in the practice of open source. You could see it yourself if you went to look. But people tend to just carry around their preconceptions. So as we go through the fears, what we're going to find again and again is that this is not really a thing. It's just a thing you think is happening. So let's go through them. So you've recently talked about the myths surrounding the quality of open source engineering. Can you expand more on this myth and, and the actual reality? Sure. So most old school engineering process in theory at least, involves a lot of checking and balancing and a lot of the, the process of the overall process of the company is gonna get, is going to protect you from individual bad engineering choices, right? But the reality is, is quite different than that. Um, first of all, let me just say that open source developers are the best developers in the world. And I know that because they 
get paid slightly better um, if you go look at the surveys about pay, but they also are willing to allow their code to be publicly inspected. They're confident that they've done the work to make it as perfect as it can be or as useful as it can be. And they're willing to take feedback and, and work it again if somebody finds them. They're grateful for those eyes. They're not, it's not about, they don't have ego about being perfect. They have ego about being good engineers, right? Which means getting to the right answer through whatever means. But most of them find that, that ability of the community to think again about their work to be a real boon, a real valuable thing. And um, I think that that myth about the, the poor engineering is another example of the companies that were so afraid of open source trying to convince their customers to stay the course. But it's a little level if you have, say, Microsoft's security exploits or just bugs in general that go years without getting touched because it doesn't make commercial sense for them to re-roll the product yet. It's not time yet, right? In open source, if that bug bothers you enough, you'll you'll contribute a fix and it'll be fixed immediately, right? For everyone, not just for you. So um, I think that, that that's obviously a more compelling story to the end user. And I think that the the traditional companies were just trying to keep people from getting used to that idea. So I also heard a myth about open source projects being insecure and posing a risk to banking systems. Would you say this is the case in your experience? This is one that I actually have kind of horse's mouth um, information on because back in the day, this was the number one thing that we were told by companies that or, or governments that were dangerous or th thought that open source was going to be dangerous. They would be afraid about the security. Because how can it be secure if everybody can see it? How can it be secure if anybody can contribute to it? Is sort of the thinking here. Because they don't understand the way that things are done. If anything, it's more secure. Because every decision that's made about that code tree is documented. There's, there's, there's no, you know, so-and-so just did it. That none of that exists because everything has to be both uh, written out and um, if questioned, defended, right? And all of those records are kept publicly and they're archived in such a way that you can search them. But also, uh, if you think about it, I, I worked, when I worked at Sun, I worked with this guy named Whitfield Diffie, Dr. Dr. Diffie, who recently got a Turing Award, by the way. He invented uh, Diffie-Hellman encryption, which is the same as RSA encryption. So all commerce on the web owes its, its existence to this man's work. And I asked him if it was true that proprietary software was more secure. And he actually thought about it a while before he answered me, he, like he was doing calculations in his head. And then he said, I can't think of a statistical defense that says either of them is inherently better. But I can tell you from qualitative data, from direct experience, that the time it takes to get a patch out of a proprietary company is measured in weeks, months, or years in some cases. And in an open source context, it's hours or days at worst. So there is no such thing as perfect software. It doesn't exist. As soon as 
and imperfection is found in open source software, especially security imperfection, there is instant action to remediate it. And that makes it a better choice if you're looking for security. Okay, so I'm going to play a little bit of role play here and, and put my product owner hat on. Um, so as a product owner, it's vitally important that my projects are supported and delivered on time. Does open source meet my quality and support expectations? Well, first the quality one for sure. Um, there's a belief out in the world that you can't buy support for open source, but if you think about it, Red Hat just sold to IBM for billions of dollars. And that is a business founded on the idea of providing premium support for open source software. So clearly it's possible to buy support for your open source software. Now, if you are doing custom modifications to an existing open source project, and you're worried about those custom modifications, that's kind of your software at that point. It's not really open source software anymore. But if you can make those general enough that you can give them back to the upstream as enhancements and they get merged in, then it's going to be maintained by the community. So you'll have that open source effect. There's this thing called the, the many eyes make all bugs shallow phenomenon. Bill Joy used to say, we can't possibly employ all of the smart people in the world. So by working in community like this on the horizontal problems, we gain a much larger brain trust. And if all those eyes are looking at the same problem space, they're going to see it differently. I'll tell you that the, the first time we accepted changes from the community into the Java code base, it was a subroutine that had been in Java since its inception that created an unnecessary um, spinning loop that you eventually got thrown out of. But there was a lot of wasted time in the processing of going around the circles of this loop. And this kid, he was a, he was a college kid, saw it and said, I think I can give you like a 25% um, performance enhancement with a single line of code. <laughs> And you can imagine how that made the senior engineers in JavaSoft feel because they felt that they were the best engineers in the world, but they'd missed this obvious thing, right? So that shallowness of all bugs means that open source is inherently higher quality. So then there's the question of um, what, what if something gets missed? Again, the amount of time it takes for a, for a problem to be fixed is infinitesimally small compared to that proprietary throat that you think you can choke. They don't move very fast, those proprietary companies. Not even in a really serious problem space are they able to marshal quick defenses against those problems the way that an open source project can. That's um, a really great story about the, the Java team. Um, yeah. I can imagine you know, their reaction to somebody coming you know, out of nowhere and, and improving performance on that routine by 25%. That's just unbiased. The thing that made the, it take so long to open source Java is that the decision was made by senior management and the, the engineers did not want it to happen. James Gosling used to fight with me about it, right? They did not want it to happen. They had different reasons why, but it was, they were pretty sure it was going to be the end of Java. And, you know, I'll tell you, here's a really good story I haven't told lately. I was at ApacheCon this year, this past year, North America, because it was the 20th anniversary of Apache and they were doing a film about it, which just came out recently. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, 
I was in the 10th anniversary one. So I was asked to come back because they wanted continuity. I was the only woman in the 10th anniversary one. So, and this was, this is a more diverse one, which is great. But um, so they had James Gosling do the keynote at ApacheCon North America. And I was sitting right in front of him in the front row. Um, so he's looking down at me and we've known each other a long time, you know. And he said two important things that I had never heard him say before, but both of them made me really happy. The first one was that people don't realize that Sun's software business was at its most profitable ever after we had open sourced everything that was, wasn't nailed down. People always accuse me of, of contributing to the demise of Sun, but he's saying no. He says, actually, it was more profitable, the software business. The reason is that they stopped relying on licensing that they were always under pressure to discount. And they started writing very straightforward support contracts. And that was more that was a more profitable business at the end of the day, right? So that's the first thing. So now when people accuse me, I can say, you don't know what you're talking about. But then the second one, which, which actually made me cry, we'll see if I'll get through it this time without crying. He said, I know I fought you, but if we hadn't done what you wanted, we wouldn't have Java now, right? So he thanked me because I was indefatigable. I was too. I must've been such a pain anyway. <laughs> And, and that's the thing, you know, it's, it's, um, it's easy to see the differences now that open source has won and it's so stark. The companies that haven't gotten on the bus are the ones trying to convince the halls of power that it's still dangerous, but the whole industry wouldn't be where it is without it. So it's pretty clear now the emperor has no clothes and all of the, all the people that um, got on the bus like Microsoft, they're looking back going, oh my God, we used to hang out with those losers, you know? <laughs> well, it's pretty amazing to hear that your your vision's been confirmed by people coming back to you and saying, you know, you were right, you know, that, and giving you thanks for that. Yeah, it um, only takes 20 years. <laughs> well, that's why you've got to stick with it, you know, stick with your vision and then it, then it pays off over time. Um, so open source can often be a new and confusing landscape. Can you recommend a place where people can learn about open source? Gosh, there are so many good places. Um, of course, Finos has its own, its own resources, and I know you're building those all the time. The Linux Foundation announced a whole bunch of new resources in the, their conference this week. <clears throat> but there's also Open Source Way, which is, uh, uh, comes out of um, Red Hat. There's uh, the OSI itself has now a course that you can take, like a management level course um, through Brandeis University, and you get a, a master's out of it in open source, believe it or not. And um, if you just want to learn how to collaborate because you want to be part of the open source movement, but you don't know how yet, I'd suggest coming to intersourcecommons.org, which really actually is um, a place where you can learn from your peers and, and from the materials we've created, how to foster those methods inside your company, you'll be in much better shape to do the, the external thing. And in fact, Microsoft, I did a podcast with Microsoft a couple months ago, Martin Woodward, where he said, um, the truth is we, we invested in open source for Azure, 
we invite we hired a bunch of people away from apache or well not away from because you don't leave apache but they were people who were from apache to come help with building up azure and it was super successful like it's done much better than it ever would have done if we had not taken that tack and we can see that the engineering is better it's a more direct method so now we're looking to intersource to teach the rest of our employed base of engineers how to work this way. Think about that for a minute. That's amazing to me. Microsoft is trying to teach its individual rank and file engineers to work like open source engineers because that is the better way to code. That's really impressive. And if um if you're able to join inner source together with open source and get that, you know, continuous kind of figure of eight leap, you know, from outer to inner back to outer, then that's just fantastic. Yeah, I totally agree. So finally, can you talk a little about Neoform's involvement with Finos and what the future looks like? Sure. So we do have a lot of clients at Neoform who rely on us to create um, pieces of their infrastructure or new features that they can't figure out how to write themselves. And um, sometimes also we teach capabilities, which is like teaching them inner source or, or how to do agile properly or um, helping them with their continuous integration and deployment strategy. <clears throat> Those are the kinds of things that we get involved with. And um, over the years, Neoform has had quite a few fintech clients and also clients who fintech companies tend to engage with. So sometimes we're working with a second order client who is also consulting to a fintech company. <clears throat> so it's been it's been very interesting. It might be proximity to London, being between London and New York, maybe, um, that we get so many of those kinds of clients. So we occasionally do something that we think is going to be more broadly useful and we're able to convince our client or our partners to allow us to open source it. That happened not too long ago with a project called Polaris. Polaris is um, what I, IBM calls API banking um, framework and it's it should be very, very useful to fintech organizations that are looking to modernize their interface to customers and um, be able to turn stuff out faster, you know, with less less torture, basically, on the, on the internal architecture. So it simplifies some things by putting them behind an, an API. This is basically why PayPal acquired Braintree, I believe, was because the simplified API was gaining so much more traction. So... This is a tool that any fintech company could use and apply to create that same effect. We've open sourced a reference implementation, meaning that we've published the code openly. Um, and some of us inside of Nearform are trying to convince uh, the company to give the whole kit and caboodle over to Finos because it's so obviously for your audience. Um, we became members of Finos uh, late last year, although I had already spoken for you a couple of times um, previous to that. In fact, it was before you joined, I think, that I spoke the first time. Um, and, you know, that was because I worked for PayPal and I was dabbling in teaching PayPal open source and they were interested in, in that space, right? I don't think PayPal was a member of Finos at the time, though. Um, Nearform joined to give us a better interface to our customers or a different interface to our customers because um, sometimes it feels like you're pushing your customer too hard in a direction, even if they've requested it. But having an organization that's devoted to 
tackling their fears and making, you know, giving them support is really, really helpful. Because at the end of the day, we're a tiny company and we're really, you know, our, our, it's almost like our remit is broader than yours. So we can hand off customer concerns about open source to you. And um, so anyway, for those reasons, some of us are thinking that that Polaris thing belongs with you and we're still trying to work on getting it over there. And I, you could take this as me asking if that would be useful. And if we hear back from people, maybe that'll help. Well, thank you very much, Denise Keeper, VP of Special Initiatives at Nearform, for joining me, James McLeod, on the Finos podcast today. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, remember to, to subscribe to Finos on LinkedIn and also on Twitter. And visit us at finos.org to get involved and register for our newsletters. And if you are a developer or an engineer, please visit us on github.com forward slash Finos, where you can start contributing to our projects. Thank you very much, Denise. It's been um, an absolute pleasure talking to you today. You're sure welcome, James. Thank you.